I'm so glad to be with you guys here tonight and uh, to be able to celebrate what God is doing. Uh, Italy, among other things, we are so thankful for the Young Life students that come around here, and we know this summer a lot, or Young Life leaders, rather, and then uh, students at various campuses. We're so excited for the camp that they're going to be going to, various camps around the nation this summer, where many will be serving for about a month, uh, and then some will be serving for just the week their students are going. So I just want to pray for them right now. Um, Lord, there's so many things on our heart right now. I remember in hearing about Sri Lanka, Lord, and the 300 folks who died there, and we lift them up to you. Lord, we pray that your, your church would not be discouraged or dissuaded by this. We pray that you would come alongside every family member and friend who was hurt by this, and we pray that uh, your gospel would shine. Lord, the one who uh, wept over the loss of his best friend, John, weeps with these believers, Lord, and I pray that, that they would sense your tenderness and your mercy, that you'd help them to grieve in your name and with your hope. Lord, we think of uh, college students and high school students that are finishing out the year. Lord, we pray that you'd help them to make their summers count for you, particularly these young life leaders. Lord, we know that uh, the big push that they move towards are these summer camps. And we pray there'd be many students who attend, that those who are on the fence would go, that there wouldn't be any financial restraints or obstacles. Lord, we pray for the Young Life leaders themselves, that their hearts would be hot for you, that they would love you and their students would see that. Uh, Lord, pray you'd give them a supernatural love for these students. And Lord, we pray for those who are gonna be gone for uh, a full month at various camps, serving and communicating your gospel to students. Lord, we pray that you would equip them and empower them and protect them. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, So I want to go ahead and continue on in our Colossians series where we look at, okay, the resurrection, now what? You know, we talked last week, we introduced this series that we celebrate Easter, we celebrate the resurrection uh, in us. Christ was the first to resurrect and he resurrects our soul now and our bodies later when we see him face to face, just like we sang about. And so now what? How do we live now? And that's where we go to this letter written to the Colossians. So let's pick up in Colossians chapter 2, verse 1. Colossians chapter 2, verse 1. This is Paul speaking. He says, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that none of you may be deceived by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is." So the summary of these first six verses could be, just as you received Christ as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in Christ. All your main points tonight, all our main points are going to begin with F. Isn't that nifty? As that came together, I just, I felt so good about that. But all our main points are <laughs> F. And these first, this first part of Colossians chapter 2 is really a follow-up where Paul is following up on what he wrote in the first part of this letter that we studied last week in chapter one. So follow up. 
In verse 6, Paul reiterates the need for them to continue in Christ and there to grow by being rooted and built up in Jesus. And rooted refers to that which is under the ground. We don't see the roots, but man, when I have to do yard work and that big, huge oak tree in my front yard, that root structure can go down so deep. I mean, it goes down so, so deep. When I've had to dig out certain roots, it just takes forever. So it is in our lives. When we tend to our own souls through the spiritual disciplines by creating space for the Holy Spirit to work in our lives through Bible study and prayer and fellowship with other believers, that is our roots growing down deep. Others don't see it, but they see the fruit, don't they? And they're blessed by it. And we need to remember, too, what Paul's writing, the reason he's writing for, we'll miss the point. He's writing to the church at Colossea, and he wanted to strengthen them in their faith and protect them from a very destructive heresy. And the heresy was a syncretic kind of pseudo-fake Judaism mixed with pagan philosophy. And as we said last week, this heresy taught that one needed a secret knowledge. They needed an inside scoop, a special word, in order to be a solid Christ follower. And we said that while we don't struggle with that same heresy today, we can get all twisted up as it relates to God's will. We think God's will is this big mystery that hasn't already been revealed, that we need some kind of special word to understand his will for our lives. And we have it in this, we said. We have it right here. We have his will for us. We have the Holy Spirit. We have this. We have his will. Many of us operate under the false notion that we need to get a special sign from God in order to understand his will. Perhaps he'll reveal himself in the clouds, or he'll tell us that we're to marry the person that we meet on a Tuesday in May at Goodale Park who blinks five times and wears a red top. You know, I mean, I've, I've actually heard some of these ridiculous things. And not that God never communicates in strange ways like that, but I will say it is very rare and always be at least cautious about a believer who's always talking about discovering God's will through some sort of special sign. All of us, even if we do occasionally get special signs from the Lord, all of us should talk much more about what God's revealing here. I think that's causing a lot of division in the church today, this, this very issue. The stressed voice I hear so often as a pastor is, if only I knew what God's will for me was, I could move forward. I could move forward with my life if I just understood what he wants me to do. And that's a lie. In fact, we use the word Paul, we, use, we see Paul using the word mystery four times in this letter and the word hidden three times. And you know what? I think, I don't know this, I want to capitalize that. I don't know this, the Bible doesn't say this. But I think he's being a little snarky. I think Paul had a little bit of a sarcastic streak in him. And I would think he was saying, yeah, you know what? You guys are talking about all this mystery and how it's hidden. Let me tell you what the mystery is. The mystery is Christ in us, and it's already been revealed. So he was relating to them, these heretics, with language that they could relate to. This, these heretical teachings had infiltrated the church, so he's using words like mystery and hidden to relate to them. So they would think, wow, this is a very, teaching, this is a very different teaching than what I'm hearing from these other teachers who were telling me that I need some kind of special knowledge in order to be a solid Christ follower. This mystery we said from last week in chapter 1, verse 25, is this. 
Paul says, I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. Dun, dun, dun. Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Familiarity breeds contempt, doesn't it? Familiarity breeds contempt. That is, we have this thing. Many of us, if you're like me, you have 10 of these things in your house. You have access to it on your phone. And it can seem like it's always there, so I I want something special that other believers don't get. But the answer's right here. The answer's right here. And it's good news. It means you and I have God's will in our hands. So when asked, where should I go to college, or who should I date, or who should I marry, or how should I live in marriage, or... Where should I work, or where should I live, or how should I handle my singleness, or how should I view a whole host of difficult social issues and culture or political issues? The answer is in God's word. Now, maybe not directly, maybe not directly, but as we seek wisdom regarding how to handle relationships, how to handle trials, how to look for a godly spouse, how to live in a godly marriage, how to live a godly single life, how to use our money, how to love the poor, all these things, how to reach out to others, all of them find their root in God's word because we find his character, we find our identity. Remember last week, I wish all of us, when we came in here, we had a sticker. We don't, we're not a hello, my name is kind of church, not that there's anything like that, anything wrong with that. I would actually love that personally because I'm bad with names and that's a bad trait for a pastor, bad character trait. I've tried all the mnemonics and everything. It's just hard for me. Uh, but I'd love it if we all put on hello, my name is in Christ. Hello, my name is written in God's word. Our identity is in there. That's where it is. So let me give you an example. Let's say that I'm looking for, I'm looking for an answer to the question, what college should I attend? Fortunately, I wasn't a huge fan of college. I finished it long ago. I paid my debt. It's over. Uh, sorry for you guys who are still in it. Um, I mean, I liked it because Becky was there, but a few other reasons. That's my wife, by the way. That's why everyone's going, oh. But if I'm thinking, what college should I attend? My correct mindset is not, I'm going to go on long walks and see if God gives me a sign in the clouds. MSU, OSU, you know, in the clouds or something like that. Uh, Or that he tells me in a dream. And although he might do that, the answer is right here. Let me explain how. It might look like something like this. I know the Bible tells me to seek counsel, so I go to my parents. I go to those who are closest to me, especially those who love the Lord, and I get as much counsel as I possibly can, and I write it down. Plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. And I especially ask those who are going to tell me something I don't want to hear, who I respect. That's humility, and God will honor it. I know the Bible talks a lot about debt and finance, and I read what it says, so I decide I don't want to go to a place where I'm going to be in a mountain of debt because that's going to hinder what God might want to do in my life in the future. Uh, I read what the Bible says about relationships, honoring my parents and being in solid fellowship and so forth. So I look for a college that has a strong campus ministry before I look for any other character trait because my faith comes first. God comes first. No school is going to get my time and going to get my money if I can't worship the Lord there and be in solid fellowship because I don't trust myself. I need the church. It's one of God's greatest gifts to us, and I'm not going someplace where I can't get it. I'm just not going to do it. So that narrows it down, doesn't it? If I want to honor my parents, hopefully, if possible, if they're halfway sane, you know, uh, 
then I want them to be pumped about my decision because I want to honor them. And if I have certain passions and desires, like let's say I have a passion for high school ministry, I want to go to a place maybe that has a vibrant young life leadership uh, expression on that college campus where I can live with them and be on mission with them and uh, go to local high school and middle school campuses around that college. Man, my choices now are very narrow, aren't they? And someone might look at my life and say, man, you discovered God's specific will. Did he tell you in a dream? No, but as you seek God's word, he will reveal your heart to you. He will. I don't think God says, well, you got to go to this one college or I'm going to turn my back on you. That's not what the Bible teaches. But as we are wise, we will make a decision that brings uh, a more life-giving situation into our lives. So the Bible, it's a tremendous gift. It's God-breathed. It's his very word, and we must not let familiarity breed contempt. All right, for many of us, we feel like, Chris, I've been there. I've done that. I've read the one-year Bible. I've, you know, you're always talking about reading the Bible, and, and so are other pastors that I've heard. It is such a gift, And as we read it, and and in the next couple weeks, we're going to look at what does God's word specifically say about his will. And I hope and pray that for many of us, it takes the pressure off. Takes the pressure off that we have to try to figure it out. So let's move on to the basis for Paul's teaching against this heresy. And this makes me happy, foundation. Glad I found a word that began with F for this one. Colossians 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. So Paul makes the transition here from exhorting the Colossians to continue in Christ to now directly addressing and condemning the heresy that was distracting them from Jesus and the simple gospel and from God's word. This hollow and deceptive philosophy that had infiltrated the church clearly depended on human tradition, and it says here, the elemental spiritual forces. So Paul's referring again to these pagan ideals and philosophies uh, and the spiritual forces that were behind them. Because there'll always be somebody who wants to add to the gospel. There'll always be. Always. It might be convictions regarding dating. You have to do it this way, there's no other way. It might be Related to child rearing, this is the way you have to do it specifically. This is the way you have to educate your kids. This is the way you have to discipline them. This is exact, or you're not in God's will. Things that are extra biblical. Obviously, there are commands related to child rearing and dating and all that that are very clear in Scripture. Could be, I've even heard clothing, hairstyles, you name it. I mean, everything under the sun. I think it's one of Satan's main attacks on us to add to the gospel. So the bridge that joins the Colossian church to us is the danger of adding stuff to the gospel. That's it. It's not Christ and us. It's Christ in us. That's our motto. That's our victory song. Anything in your brain or mind that says you need to have Jesus and is straight from hell. The toxic message could be, Chris, if you just had Jesus and a better leadership gift or a better teaching gift, then you'd be solid. Could be, Emily, if you just had Jesus and a better private devotional habit, you would win God's favor. 
Or Sarita, if you just had more passionate worship in your relationship with Jesus, all would be well. Although Sarita doesn't have that, that issue. Everybody knows that. We don't get Christ through works, nor do we walk in Christ through works. We don't focus on special or extra knowledge. We focus on Christ alone and his word. Satan will always try to make it feel, about, feel like it's about us, that we are the solution. And it's about Christ alone and his word. So we've seen Paul's spirit-inspired diagnosis of the problem in this baby church. So now let's move on to the cure. Fullness. Fullness is the cure to this heresy. In Colossians 2 verse 9. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. This is, this is astounding because Christ contains all the fullness of God in a human body, so we're complete in him through our union with him. Fullness. The fullness of him who fills everything in every way is in us. We're complete. We don't lack anything in the spiritual battle because of this fullness we have in Christ. We have everything we need to do all that he has for us. We're not just sinners saved by grace. Our old self has passed away. It was crucified with Christ, and now the new self has been resurrected. It says so in Romans 8, 11. It says, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. And we need to remember this, don't we? Because when Christ speaks so much about joy and abundance and delight, he knows that that's how we're wired. We're made to be full in every way, aren't we? We love to be full. We don't like emptiness. Our intimacy tank is supposed to be full. Our delight and pleasure tank is supposed to be running over. But because of the fall, that is our choice to sin, fullness is elusive. But without Christ, we'll never be full. We stuff our faces until health problems abound. We drink ourselves stupid until our lives dwindle to a bottle in regrets. We're over-sexualized to the point of feeling numb and void of any real intimate relationships, full of guilt and shame. It's all in an effort to feel full. This sense of fullness is an ever-moving target, always stuffing ourselves but never satisfied. But it doesn't have to be so elusive. The fullness of Christ is ours through him, through his indwelling spirit, through the Holy Spirit, and through his word revealed. So if we're anxious, we have the answer. If we're addicted, we have the cure. It doesn't mean that we won't go to bed a little hungry because Make no mistake, we all know this. We wake up to a spiritual battle every day whether we acknowledge it or not. Whether or not we're going to preach the gospel to ourselves. Whether or not we're going to choose who Jesus says we are or who the world says we ought to be. Life's difficult and sin abounds, but where sin abounds, God's word says grace abounds all the more. So last point uh, spoken against this dangerous heresy, the finished work. In Colossians 2, verse 13, he says, When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us of all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, 
He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So we were dead because of our sins and our sinful nature, because it was not yet cut away. But God made us alive with Christ, forgiving us of our debt and the charges that we deserved. Condemnation because of our sins was was nailed to the cross. The gospel doesn't say sin makes you bad and Jesus' goal is to make you better. As some teach, the gospel says sin makes you dead. And Jesus gives us life by resurrecting our souls now and our bodies and we see him later when he fulfills all things. So Paul gets into the nitty-gritty in the second part of chapter 2 here. So he, he gets to the so what. Okay, so he's been saying these are the realities of your resurrection. It's about being in Christ. It's not about having this secret knowledge. It's about the salvation of Jesus Christ through Christ expressed through his word. So then he picks up in verse 16. Therefore, that is because of this reality, this resurrection reality in us, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. Or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they've seen. They're puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head, that's Jesus, whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. So the encouragement is, don't get called back into the old way of life. Don't ask, what do I have to do to get right with God? Because it's already been done. Religion says, I need to check off the box, just in case. I know I have the grace of Christ, but I need to check off the box. The the box could be giving a little more money. The box could be uh, to the church or some charity. The box could be attending services more often. box could be any number of things. For this early church, again, it was keeping religious laws, the Jewish religious laws related to diet and different seasons of the year. And Paul says that those things were mere shadows of the realities of Christ. For example, Passover. Now the ultimate Passover lamb paid the once for all time sacrifice in Jesus Christ. So it was fulfilled. Those things were a foreshadowing of what would come in Christ They also, as already mentioned, struggled with pagan Jewish syncretism that added some heretical worship practices. Again, an example here, we just read this in 2.18. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they've seen. They're puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. So evidently, this, this heresy involved the worship of angels, it says that such a person goes into great detail about what they've seen. So in other words, they say, hey, I saw a vision of an angel, and you didn't. So there. You know, what, what a load of garbage. What a load of garbage. Unfortunately, this sounds all too familiar to me. All too familiar. 
While we've already said the heresy this church faced was different than ours, the similarities lie in how believers can be deceived by those who think they have the spiritual secret. I've been to whole conferences where 90% of what's said is not even in the Bible. And it's some sort of secret. Yeah, there's scriptures thrown in every now and again, but it's practices, it's approaches to prayer and all this. They have the secret, and if you just do what they do, then you can be a real Christian. We're all tempted to add something to the gospel. The pre-Gnostic ideals that abounded in Colossae have been around for a long time. In fact, we still face them today. New Gnosticism, even the church, believe think, believes things like gender, read male and female, don't really matter. You see, Gnostics hated the human body. And modern culture is pushing the same product under a different label today. The body is just a bag of chemicals to many, so God-ordained human identity markers like gender are not key to our understanding of self. They're restrictions to our personality that we need to abandon and replace with them and they instead of him and her. Gender is seen as a prison, not a common grace to help us understand my relationship to self and my relationship to others. The ancient Gnostics rejected the idea that God became flesh through Christ because they hated the flesh. They believed the body was the prison house of the soul. That's why Paul speaks so often in Colossians of God becoming flesh. Would have been very offensive to them. He does so, or John does so in his gospel as well. But new Gnosticism didn't spring up overnight. It's taken several centuries. And in fact, we find its roots right here in this book. So the problems we're facing today found their roots in this book. It's been around for a long time. This Gnostic belief that you have to have a secret knowledge. Sure. A number of ways we see it today. First of all, through popular culture. Its foundational teachings, this new Gnosticism is as follows. Number one, the goal of science is not the discovery of truth, but rather relief from human suffering and the extension of human life. As a byproduct, second, it has an entirely materialistic view of the world. There's no spiritual reality. It's all about right here, right now. Third, it holds the Darwinian belief that things in nature are random rather than divinely contrived. And finally, it teaches an aggressive secularism rooted in atheism. And this is all around, guys. It may not be in your circles, but any student here who attends Ohio State or has gone to Ohio State, they see it. In my neighborhood, one of my very, very good friends who's a great man, this is precisely what he believes. Under the new Gnostic worldview, God doesn't exist. And by implication, the material world is the only reality. All is simply a matter of chance, and chance is the new enemy. In old Gnosticism, it was the flesh. In new Gnosticism, it's chance. Because the idea is, whether we're talking about adultery or child abuse or anything else, we have no control over the choice to do that. It's all a product of our environment and biology. But if we can change those chemical reactions, then somehow we can alter our reality. So the enemy's chance. Science, in this case, is the the secret knowledge. It can manipulate these chemical reactions to change our future reality. So fullness comes through science, not through Christ. But don't get me wrong, science is good. We all know that science was founded and established by Christians and God-fearers. It wouldn't even be on the map if it weren't for God. It's an excellent tool to help us explain creation and to make the world a better place and to improve our health. I believe it's one of God's uh, most profound common graces that he's bestowed on us. I think it's wonderful. But it cannot answer the question, 
Why am I here? And do I matter? In the church, Gnosticism's negative impact is far more subtle. Many churches and ministries teach the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ with a bunch of other stuff thrown into the pot as well. If you want to know how you're going to get through this addiction, you seek a special word of knowledge from your church, from someone in your church, instead of seeking God's word. And I'm not condemning the spiritual gifts. I'm condemning the misuse of them because I've seen it do so much catastrophic damage to those I love. And this real and grotesque leaking of Gnostic theology in the church says to the lonely person who is single, I have a special word from the Lord. You're going to get married to someone this year. Sometimes even height, hair color, number of children, and whatever. I've seen people, multiple people, abandon the faith because of And I'm not very example. Again, I'm not saying that God never speaks these words over someone through another believer. I'm saying that it's often done in an unhealthy and unbiblical way. So dig down yet another layer, and you find an even more subtle danger resulting from Gnostic influence— the believer who prays it round as victorious with all kinds of boxes they say you need to check off. If you read the Bible like I do, if you raise your kids like I do, if you share the gospel exactly like I do, if you become basically a cookie-cutter carbon copy of me, then you'll have arrived. You know what that's called? Very subtle. It's a personality cult. If someone talks about more, more about themselves and their own example than they do Jesus and his, be careful. Because they're impressive. Because oftentimes they're great teachers. They're very convincing. But they share more about themselves and their own example and about how great they are. And we've seen it happen time and time again in churches and ministries. That man or woman falls and all else comes crumbling down. And thousands of believers are left homeless And those who are a little weak or new in their faith are destitute and hopeless because the focus was not on Jesus. I may disqualify myself. Okay, I don't plan on disqualifying myself from ministry. That's, you know, I don't have a five-step process on how to do that. Uh, But I might. I'm a sinner. My hope and prayer is that I always point you to Jesus, not Chris Old. I'll share an example from time to time, but... I've had others critique me because, Chris, what about this? You could use this example. You could use that. No, I want to point you to Jesus. It's about him. It's about your love for him. It's about your love for his word, and that's it. Because let me tell you what, now, very few in this room 10 years from now, you're going to move on. A lot of you are in transitions in your life. You're not going to remember me. You know, I'm going to come up once every now and again, you know, when you talk about, like, goofy clothes pastors wear or something, you know, uh, and, uh, but I tell you what, if you have a love for Jesus Christ and a commitment, a hard and fast commitment to his word, mission accomplished. So beware of this person. This person never talks about their struggles for fear of being found out. In reality, in doing this, they're hiding the mercy and grace of Christ and elevating themselves to a place of spiritual authority. I should say inappropriate spiritual authority because they're discounting the grace of Jesus Christ and saying they don't need it, that they have it all together. We are better. Here is the cure to this subtle, this, this, and this, and this. Hey, I'm living the victorious life. You should follow me all the while. I know that I'm full of crap because I'm doing this, 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 and this. We're all in that boat. Okay, the better way is confess our sins to each other 
In James 5.16, it says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other because the prayer of a righteous man or woman is powerful and effective. Okay, the reason is, is when we're humble, through our transparency, what do we preach? What? Our need for Jesus. And when we hide it, we say, I don't need him, that I've found a righteousness in myself, that it's Jesus and It's Christ in us, the hope of glory, period. We can parade our struggles. We can, like Paul, rejoice in our weaknesses together. We can almost laugh at our sin and say, I struggled with this this week, but I know he's going to pull me out of it. Can you pray with me? And we can draw one another to the cross. We can even say, hey, I'm struggling this week, and I don't want to get out of it. I don't want to stop being angry. I don't want to stop pursuing this addiction. I don't want to get out of this insecurity. I don't want to address this depression. I don't want to, but I want to want to. Will you pray for me? The Lord loves weakness. It is like bees to honey because he demonstrated that for us on the cross, that by his stripes we're healed. When it appeared that all was lost, Sunday morning came. When it appeared like sin had won because God in the flesh let himself die a despicable, disgusting Criminal's death on a cross was by his weakness and his sacrifice that were healed. And I believe that we mirror the cross much louder and much more powerfully through that than any other ministry we can provide one another, way more than preaching. When we speak our weaknesses and ask for help and pray for one another and draw one another to the cross, that's what it's about. We gotta stop pretending. Nobody wins. We preach the gospel to ourselves and one another when we confess our sins, pray for repentance, pray for healing, and move together. Amen? Let's do that. Um, I'll go ahead and invite the worship team up here. I'm debating whether or not I want to say these last few things. You guys are like, please don't, please don't. I want to get home. Uh, I would probably think the same thing, honestly, if I were you. Uh, Did I just say that out loud? I did. Hey, I'm trying to rejoice in my weaknesses. Pray for me that I would love being with the saints. I do love being with the saints, but I need to grow in that. Uh, So I want to take one final look at uh, verse 23 of Colossians 2, but this time in a different devotion in the New Living Translation. It says, these rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. Isn't that crazy? Pious self-denial, strong devotion, and severe bodily discipline. They're respectable, but they don't provide any power for conquering our evil desires. What conquers our evil desires? Jesus Christ, confessing our need for him, crying out to him, admitting our need. These kinds of Jesus and strategies offer no help. To quote late author Brennan Manning, he says this, that in the end, my sin will never outweigh God's love, that the prodigal can never outrun the father, that I'm not measured by the good I do, but by the grace I accept. This quote came from Brennan's final book that he wrote right before he died. It's fittingly titled, All is Grace. Is all grace for you? When you think and talk about Jesus with others, does your heart sing? 
When you're with other Christians, are you thinking about all the ways they have it wrong and you have it right? Do you, like me, oftentimes, oftentimes, and I mean that, parade around like you're living the perfect victorious Christian life and all the while you are crumbling inside? If that's where you're at tonight, there is so much more. There is so much more. Do you know what it does to another believer's soul when you confess weakness and you ask for prayer? Man, it moves mountains. Not because we're anybody, but because Jesus has made us priests in his kingdom. And we can, we can draw near to him in ways together that we can't alone. So I want to encourage you to just to do that tonight. If all is not grace for you, but it's Jesus and. The prayer team will be up here after we sing uh, a couple songs. They'll be up here to pray with you, so please take advantage of that. At this time, we're going to take our offering. Uh, feel free to write down your prayer request on this and throw it in the basket. Also, uh, you can mark off any information you want. Uh, and if you're new, please fill it out, drop it in the basket so we can keep you updated on what's going on around here. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, we thank you that it is Christ in us, the hope of glory. It's not Christ and hard work. It's not Christ and a long list of do's and don'ts to somehow be accepted by you. It's not Christ and a laborious ministry to prove ourselves as worthy to you. Lord, it's Christ in us. It is the hope of glory that one day we'll see you with them. That we'll see you, Lord, and we can live every day from now until then with that in mind, with all the confidence and hope that comes with knowing that you're in us and that you're going to complete and fulfill and restore all things. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.